0: It's another YouTuber episode. I got a brand new friend, another Canadian that I haven't met in real life, but I'd love to. Justin Say is here. Hey, how are you? I'm glad we could get on here. We've been chatting in the background. It's funny because I think people that watch YouTube assume that all YouTubers all know each other and like hang out in some secret community or something. Yeah, But it's like always exciting for me anyway, just to get to meet anybody else that does this kind of thing. Like it's always this slightly isolating job. When you're recording, you're just yeah. talking to yourself. So I don't know. It's having a podcast is a great excuse to create some socialization around it.
1: And I think it's funny because we found out over on Twitter that you used to live in Victoria. And Victoria is literally one of the more isolated places you could be in Canada on the island. And um, I don't really know any creators around this area. So it was cool to hear that um, you used to be from here.
0: Yeah, I was super surprised to find that out when I first saw it on your. Like, I saw a few of your videos before <laughs> I realized it. I'm like, wait, Victoria, really? cuz when we were there so we were there for a year and it was right when Stocksy was being started and nobody that founded Stocksy is from Victoria a lot of us are from Calgary uh Bruce and Brianna who were sort of you know CEOs are from Calgary but were living in LA right before it so everybody came to Victoria nobody was already there we all moved really? and right we're like Where are we going to do
1: this? I don't know. Victoria sounds nice, (laughs) so that's where we. (laughs) There seems to be like a second wave of tech companies that are starting to come in um, recently. So, uh, I mean, I'm in the house all day, just uh, doing the usual YouTube stuff. So I don't know as much about like what's going on in the creative or tech scene around here, but it does seem like that is kind of the trend moving forward. I mean, Victoria is not the cheapest place to live, but it definitely is cheaper than Vancouver and Toronto, which seems to be why it's um, becoming more popular for companies to start here. Right. I mean, for anybody
0: that doesn't know, because I'm sure plenty of people outside of Canada don't know what Victoria's <laughs> like. It's in a pretty small town on an island. Like Canada is a huge country. We are yeah. enormous, and Victoria's maybe the biggest city that is not on the mainland. Maybe I don't know. And just
1: like another way to sort of reference it would be that we don't have an Apple Store. So I think <laughs> it's like it's not tiny, tiny, yeah. but it it also doesn't have an Apple Store, which is Kind of a clue to the size or scale of it, for sure. And w- it was funny because I was really excited to move there because it's beautiful. Like it's,
0: it's you know, go Google some photos of it. It's an exceptionally beautiful city. But um once you're there, you also realize that that beautiful area is not that big, and then there's not a lot you know, happening outside of it. So oh, yeah, um, you know, peop- like people like you that are you know making a creating something out of a small community, like it's awesome. I I love that that happens, and I think. I don't know. It's so easy to get focused on the bigger markets, like to just pretend that nothing exists except for Toronto, Vancouver, LA, and New York. uh, And, you know, their equivalents in Europe and Asia. But, uh, you know, there's (laughs) there's other places and good stuff coming out of it. And you'd be surprised (laughs) if you look around where some of your favorite creators are coming from. But how would you, for anybody that hasn't already been introduced to your channel, how do you describe the things that you put out?
1: Uh, So I started YouTube when I was really young. I think I was like 12 or 13. And funny enough, I wasn't really into tech when I grew up. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's been almost 10 years. So I've spent half my life kind of just creating content and kind of, I don't think I've ever stopped um, since I started. It was probably one one or two weeks off in between, but I was always just like living and breathing YouTube from the day I started. Um, When I was younger, I wasn't really into tech at all. I just like I had a flip phone in high school when people had smartphones. Uh, My parents were kind of like, you got to save up for your own tech if you want it. We don't really think you need it. Uh, So I started watching some, uh, doing some research on like an iPod Touch. And I realized there was a lot of videos on accessories. Back then, cases, um, accessories for the iPhone. There were some main brands out there that still exist today. uh, And eventually I saved up, I think, one or two years for the iPod Touch. And the iPod Touch second generation didn't have a camera. But when the fourth generation had a camera, I think I decided to just start recording anything I could get access to. Uh, i go to school and ask if anybody had a new device or accessories. Uh, if my parents bought like a new HDMI cable, I would review that as well. So everything I could find around the house, um, printer unboxings, I would film it. And I think in the first year or two, I filmed a video almost every single day. I believe Whoa. it was anywhere from about three to 500 videos that were just like rough, um, unedited, uploaded from the iPod. A lot of times we're in 480p because I didn't want to wait for the upload. And it was back when YouTube app was still on the iPod. You didn't have to like put on the computer because I didn't have one. Um, And I'd say like over the years, it has evolved over to the mobile industry, to general consumer tech. And I went to university out of high school um, to pursue business. My parents were kind of pushing that. I've always been um, very Interested in the business side of things, um, the video and the photo production side was something that kind of came after from being on YouTube. But in the past couple of years, I've been trying to just figure out what exactly I want to make videos of and ways I could try to fit into the industry that is very uh, saturated, um, time sensitive. I want to just try some travel content, lifestyle content, integrate a bit of my love for fashion and industrial or not industrial, but like home design and decor as well. So I think um, tech is still like the base and it's what I love and what I feel like I'm most familiar with. But I still want to keep like all the options open and experiment with the industry. Yeah, something
0: I really love about your channel is that it's not pure tech and something that I try to keep going in mind as well, which is hard to do. All the advice is like niche down, like do something specific so people know what to expect.
1: That's advice I
0: would give too. I think it is the right advice because, you know, it's
1: tough. Like, people love the personality side, I think, but like sometimes you might have like one or two comments where they're like, oh, we subscribe for tech. And when the channel's like many years old or in some cases a decade old, a lot of the audience came from the tech industry. Um, And so it's like, it's hard to integrate new things. And even though people like it or they might request it on one uh, platform like Instagram, you might put it on YouTube and you might get a different response that, instagram might love but youtube may be expecting something else for anybody that is
0: thinking about starting a youtube channel today from scratch and they know as much as you did when you started how possible do you feel like it is um personally i think that uh you absolutely can do it even if you're just starting out with an iphone a webcam yeah uh, you can make a go at it it is harder because most not because it's saturated um, even though it is saturated, I don't think that at all is the reason not to do it because, you know, the next David Dobrik, the next MKBHD doesn't exist yet. They're not posting yet, but they will show up and they will make a huge impact and everybody will be like, oh, I guess it wasn't saturated when we thought it was. The challenge, I think, is that uh, there's there's a higher bar, like more content is very well produced, right? There wasn't. Oh, for sure. There wasn't an yeah. MKBHD at the time. There wasn't anybody doing that really high level tech production stuff. So, you know, now we're in an environment where there's a, a bunch of big channels doing high level stuff. But I, I don't think people should be too discouraged. I don't know. Like, what do you think the minimum level? Like, what does it take to get into YouTube now?
1: I think like a lot of people might argue that um, a big reason why I. Have a good following uh, today, even though there is still a long way to go. The bar has been pushed much higher is because I started back in 2010, 2011. Um, the way I kind of see it is that back then there might have been much fewer creators, um, but there was also a much smaller audience and the industry was still completely new. Um, today, it is harder to get into it in some areas, but I would also argue that there's much more available resources out there as well. Now that the platform is is much more matured, um, The tools that you have available to you, smartphones having 4K cameras and everything, a lot of the content that is thriving nowadays and creators that have blown up in the past few years didn't even exist five years ago. I feel like YouTube and the way it's changed and the people who have started on it today and found success have kind of learned the new ways of how the platform works. I think surviving on YouTube for a long period of time is very hard. So I think for anyone who wants to get started today, I actually think it's it's in a better position um, than it was in 2010, 2011, where back then for everyone, it was just a bit of a hobby. You would just upload whatever you had on your device and there wasn't really a standard or kind of people that you can look up to and follow, even though there was a few. There wasn't, like, like you said, the MKBHDs of the industry. Yeah, even that template of what could I do or what should I do
0: or what are other people doing, it's hard to remember that the people that have created that template they weren't taking it from anywhere necessarily right they they were taking little pieces yeah. from things they saw but it had to be invented sure. like how do you turn how do you make this a business you know how do you make enough money by posting things on the internet that you can keep doing it it seems obvious now maybe because you can you know go watch a Gary, your truck video or whatever, because there's yeah, tons of content sure. about it. But um, that did have to people had to come up with those ideas. So I think you're totally right that the resources are much more complete. So you can go from uh, iPod Touch recordings to decent quality production with a interesting show format pretty quickly. I mean, especially if you listen to this show, because we're just going to give all the secrets away. <laughs> that's, that's what we're here for. For sure.
1: And I think like the tech industry, a lot of times, um, if you look at a lot of the other industries where things go completely viral, um, in the past few years I've gone to Playlist Live and VidCon, and I think the scale of like the the amount of fans that are so committed and wanting or even fly to places to see their favorite creators is crazy. And I think the commonality between that industry is that quality is not very much of importance compared to the tech industry where the bar is set at like pretty much everyone shooting in 4k, some in six and eight K as well. Um, in a lot of the entertainment industries where the, the viral following is much more significant, you'll notice that people are recording on their smartphones or on, on vlog cameras. Yeah, for sure. I, it, you can definitely still go pick up a
0: 90 D or or whatever, And that can be the whole channel forever. You don't need to eventually get to the the really expensive stuff. And I think you're right that actually tech tech is one of the few areas that those expectations are so much higher. And it makes sense because you use tech to create this stuff, right? So inherently all of us that are making tech channels. We're all just
1: very passionate about it. Yeah, we want the the gear.
0: Exactly. We're, We're like excited to be able to get, to put these computers to use, I mean honestly, that's uh, one reason that a, a big computer like the new Mac pro, which we'll talk about today, it's exciting yeah. because we can actually use it and we can actually use it because we got excited about these cameras that demand big computers and it's this like cycle of <laughs> of of tech and production and stuff and one one thing you're saying just when you've chatted before is that Uh, You know, like you do production a lot, like video production and photography is a big thing that you do, but it's not something you end up talking about as often because it's just not what your audience is expecting from you. Whereas I I try to set that expectation that people following me are going to hear about production, whether or not it's the biggest market in the world. I realize there's more people that want to hear about smartphones, but I just have less to say about them.
1: But I think you do a good job of like mixing that. I think um, the first video I found on your channel was um, when you were doing the iPhone video, some a photographers perspective and um, the tech industry it's been around for a while. And I think people are used to seeing consumer reviews from like a very tech consumer perspective. And I think nowadays the industry that is thriving a lot is photographers and people who are really good at production, because another thing I noticed was that your production quality from day one was already very impressive. Um, I think people like to see the perspective of um, someone who is specific in the industry and can talk about kind of how it correlates with the professional field and just how good smartphone cameras are nowadays compared to professional gear that consumers might not purchase but are always interested to hear about how the consumer accessible phones and and uh, cameras that are at lower prices now can compare to the professional grade.
0: Yeah, there's this, especially seeing the word pro get slapped on top of every product that came out this year, there's this question of like, yeah. well, what do <laughs> pros really use? You know, how, how pro does a phone need to be for a professional to put it to use? Which is kind of a, a dumb question anyway, but it still gets you thinking. So that was how I approached the uh, Mac Pro review that uh, should be posted by the time this podcast is out. Whether I don't know if it is or not, but by the time you're hearing this, it's probably available on YouTube. Um, but I sent you an early copy so that we could we could talk about it. You posted your Mac Pro review, so we have lots of Mac Pro to talk about which I've talked about on the show a lot already but I didn't have one uh, yeah. to use before. It's a very exciting computer for for anyone in production. Oh, for sure. And so th- that was the perspective I took on in my video was trying to look at how is this actually useful for people creating things? And I could only really do it from my perspective. I I can tell the story of what people at a higher level are doing and you know, I've had some of those guests on the show already. uh, You can go back just a couple episodes. We've talked about it a few times and we'll talk about it some more. But from my experience, you know, I don't need to shoot 8K. And not only do I not need to shoot 8K, I don't want to shoot 8K and I I don't (laughs) plan to buy an 8K camera and I'm not rendering anything in 3D. And as I've discovered, uh, you don't need a very high end model of, of Mac Pro to meet even the highest photography needs. So, I, I don't know. I thought that was interesting. Like we do, my wife and I do production as a job, and this
1: was still more computer than we could handle. Hundred percent. Yeah, it's it's um like we I think on Twitter a lot of times we see people all going for the same spec, and I think the the common spec was the sixteen core with um with self upgraded RAM as well as the storage and a thirty two gigs of GPU. And I think from my experience of using it for the past month, it is that this computer is extremely. Overpowered, even at one quarter or one fifth or sixth in Canada of what the max model costs, it's it's amazing. But at the same time, it is very overcapable of what most people are going to need, even in the professional field.
0: Yeah, my feeling was actually it's it's funny because I was really excited about the model that I was able to use. It was sixteen cores, uh, one hundred and ninety-two gigs of RAM, I think, and four terabyte storage, two Radeon cards, the good ones. And wow. <laughs> an afterburner, so it was, it was great stacked out. Yeah, totally. It had, you know, it wasn't the top, but it's the most like any reasonable yeah. production environment could possibly need. And I really just, I couldn't make it sweat. I could never, you know, really get it going. I could get all the cores going at once. Like
1: there's, yeah, lot, you know,
0: any well optimized software can take advantage of of all sixteen cores at the same time. But I couldn't fill up the RAM by a long shot very few things slowed it down you know there is there's a limit to how fast i could render video like it you know of course there's going to be a limit it's almost
1: as if it's software yeah. like i feel like right. it's um software just hasn't been optimized to fully take advantage of it um i found like when the computer was working at its most capable uh with like raw files 6k 4.5k and like longer projects it was able to handle but i still had the same number of crashes in final cut pro 10 that i might have had right. Previously, uh, so a lot of it does come down to software, and Apple's done a very good job of that. But especially on your model, where there is uh, the dual GPU, which I think costs just on the GPU upgrade alone costs more than the base Mac Pro. I can imagine that it, it uses one GPU, if not like half of it, out of the two. Yeah, totally. It,
0: so the the main thing I remember, the easiest thing to visualize, I think, is that uh, rendering out Cinema Raw Light, so raw video from the C two hundred. 4k from resolve uh goes at 60 frames per second wow so about double real time was kind of the average which is awesome i mean you know usually you think of rendering something is like oh of course it's gonna be much slower than the project but you know take half the time to to export it as it would to watch (laughs) watch the videos so that that felt really good um But and also how quiet it is. Yeah, I saw in your review how quiet it was. Like
1: I've never heard anything come out of this computer. And if anything, like the fan or like the air conditioning system or anything, even like ambient noise is is louder than the computer itself at its absolute max load, where it's trying to crunch like a forty minute six K file. It's it's crazy how quiet it is. Um, Even though it is a three fan setup, and it might look a lot like a traditional computer that you build, uh, in the store or like a Windows computer, it literally makes no sound at all, which is something that doesn't really make much sense to me. I don't know if it's like the cheese grater design or something. I'm worried that people in watching my video, if you're
0: watching with headphones, you're going to hear the train passing outside and think that's the computer revving up, but it's not. If you hear anything, it's probably not the computer. And, but I also want to like, just hit that point now that I've spent time with it in person Looking at photos and seeing it online, just like experiencing it digitally, does not give you any sense of how beautiful this is physically. Uh, I, I know some people kind of picked it apart a little, especially especially Snazzy. I mean, I I love that we have Snazzy Labs out there yeah. to be the voice of reason when we get too hyped up about an Apple product. Sure. Uh, you know, he, he can take us down a peg or whatever. But um, no, I'm just like feeling it. I'm like, this is this is so. Incredibly good, and it it made it really obvious to me why they decided to make such an expensive box. Because yeah, the first, if you're buying a base model, if you're getting the eight cores, like something that slightly underperforms an iMac, I know why that's easy to make jokes about. I get, like, I totally yeah. get why that's funny and sure. uh, like a somewhat luxurious. But when you're experiencing it. There's no other computer I've interacted with that felt anything like this. It's because they decided to prioritize this like absolute perfection. You know, like every little detail is like that. That this USB C port cost an extra on top. If if you look at it when the case is removed, the two USB connectors on top have these beautiful steel rings surrounding the input. That's hidden. You never see it until you take the top off. I'm like, you know what? That could have been plastic. That could have been rubber. That could have been made of anything. But it's beautiful. And not only did you know they spend a few extra cents for the materials, but of course, like every step along the way and every little part of it, they made these decisions not to cut
1: costs. It's flawless. Like, I 100. Like the design is just like it's. There's nothing you can really pick apart about it because I feel like the last time I had this kind of moment when I unboxed this computer was the 2011 Mac Pro, um, even though I bought it used and it was the base model. And unfortunately, the performance never really lived up to what it was supposed to be. I think there's a few moments in, um, in Apple's product release cycle that have really given the consumer, when you open it, something new. I think the iPhone 5 was the other one, where the design was mm-hmm. was new. And I remember being so excited about that, like waiting for UPS to come. It says something when Apple's able to make a product like this in a blank white box that big that you just paid most likely five figures for and still be so excited for it when you take it out and want to open it up and look inside. Usually I'm someone who just like plugs it in and wants to use it and doesn't really care about what it looks like inside. I mean, right now it's living under my table, but after opening it up, um, it was like just everything about it is so perfect. You've even got like the diagrams that are nicely printed on the back of the of the RAM case. Everything is very tidy. Um, the screws are all color matched and there's like the mainframe design. You've also got the touch of Chrome as well. And like the small details of like the the pins on the top for the power button, how you can't power up the computer without having the, the full case on, that type of thing. I think, yeah, it is expensive. Uh, but once you spec it out and figure out like the price and, and people are always going to say, go buy a Hackintosh or go build a Hackintosh, it's just not the same thing with like such a seamless experience like this
0: maybe for some people it it, it can make sense there there are a million yeah. people that, that it would make more sense to build a hackintosh for i'm not you know making fun of you if you want to build one you it honestly makes more sense for me it would make more sense for me like <laughs> just based on return on investment uh depending on who you're creating for what sort of ROI you can have on a computer that you spend money on. But what, what this reminds me of is well, two different things. One is is the luxury market. I mean, things about this just are luxuries and you are paying extra for it. And you know what? That is a real market that exists and they are willing to pay for it. So I think it's fine for those products to be built. But at the same time, what, what this is really for and what this really makes me think of is a production environment. Like when you look at a RED camera, when you, you know, when you start rigging up an Alexa, when you turn on airy lights, when you work with the stuff that is meant to be used in anger every single day and really beaten up, all those design details feel like that. And and there's a lot of trust in the product. Yeah, exactly. There's those things out there that you just look at the engineering and you're like, wow, there is no compromises here. You can find tools in the hardware store that feel like this as well. Um, just the margin doesn't make as big of a difference, right? Like sometimes that hammer that costs $15 more, you stare at it and you're like, wow, I get, like, I see why. And it was worth it. Um, the the thing is in this case, it happens to cost a few thousand dollars more to get to that point (laughs) because there's so many details. It's going to be sold to a relatively limited market. I don't know. I just feel like I could gush forever, which is, this is such a fanboy year for me for Apple. Like I want to be objective and I want to be critical and I want to call them when they're not performing at their best. But they've just done so much right that I keep saying, I keep having good things to say. You know what I mean?
1: The iPhone's a good example. I think, like, I would say this year's iPhone's the most complete. It wasn't the most exciting. It looks the same as my phone last year. And in Canada, after tax for like a mid or a max model, the Pro is over $2,000, which is a lot to spend on a phone. But I feel like, The amount of trust is the same amount of trust that I've had um, switching to production-grade equipment as well as the Mac Pro, where this year I know the cameras, all three of them are going to be amazing. I can have different focal lengths, and they're all going to take a solid photo. The night mode is a great improvement. Uh, The video recording is great. And most importantly, the biggest issue I had with the iPhone XS Max was that the battery life just wasn't enough. I, I think I usually log about 10 hours of screen on time, which is way too much. I really want to, to <laughs> lower that, but I'd get like half a day of battery, like 1 p.m. Mm. I'd be at 20%. And I would just know that anywhere I went, um, even though I had just bought the the largest iPhone, I would suffer from bad battery life and just wouldn't have that level of trust. And you'd start to use the products a little bit differently to ration it out and ensure you can maybe get through a full day. And I think this year's iPhone is just so complete in the fact that even with all of its power and its new camera and and everything about it, the battery life is the best that I've ever had on an iPhone. And the iPhone 11 is the iPhone I'm recommending to the most people because you're just getting an incredible value with the amazing main camera as well as a wide camera that is added onto it.
0: This episode of the Stallman podcast is brought to you by Timing. Creative professionals include many time intensive tasks like video, photo, and podcast editing. So it's important to know which projects and clients you spend the most time on. But manual start and stop can interrupt the creative process and break your flow. That's why timing tracks your time. Automatically, with a breakdown of time spent on each app, website, and document. Timing has some special features for creative professionals. It's the only time tracking app that can automatically record which project you're working on in Final Cut Pro. Plus, timing is heavily multi threaded to make the most out of all the cores in your shiny new Mac Pro. If you're anything like me, and in this case, I hope you're not, When you first launch timing and see a report of how you've been spending your time, you'll notice all these little places that it's just been slipping away and you didn't quite expect to have been, uh, you know I don't want to say wasting it, but maybe wasting it in some places that aren't so productive. But at the same time, there's some things the app might categorize into a less productive category, but you know is useful. So for example, social media, that is part of our job is going on social media. So I can let the app know So I can let Timing know that that is actually real work and productive time spent so I don't have to feel as guilty when I look at those reports. Go to TimingApp.com slash Stallman to start your free 14-day trial and get 10% off your first bill. That's TimingApp.com slash Stallman. Go there now to start your free 14-day trial, and if you like it, which you will, get 10% off your first bill. Thanks to Timing for supporting the show. Timing, stop worrying about time and focus on doing your best work instead. I got the iPhone battery case for my uh, 10s Max, and I couldn't be more happy about it. I, I, I spent a long time thinking, you know what? I love the idea of having a shutter button on it, but it makes this thing yeah. so big, it's just going to annoy me. You get used to it, though.
1: I had one for a bit. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I remember back in the day I had one. I used it for like two years, I think, um, before I switched to a, a larger iPhone. Uh, But I ended up uh, I don't think I'll be putting a battery case on my on my larger iPhone anytime soon, just because like just to get it in and out of the pocket sometimes. And I'm home most of the day. But I think like before you couldn't survive without, I'd say, well, it's a little bit dramatic to say you can't survive without an external battery. But I pretty much had to take a external battery everywhere I went.
0: So I slightly disagree with everybody saying that, and this is everybody, I think I'm the only one, saying that the battery life now this year is so good. This is the first year you can go a day without, it, without a battery. I don't know if that's what you were about to say, but I've definitely heard it. I still don't feel like that. I still crush a battery a day pretty easily.
1: Oh yeah, same here, yeah. Uh,
0: you know, it. it is good. Like, it's very good. It's gotten better. Yeah. I think I think there's just a little too much hype around Like, people are so... Hyped on it that it made me feel like, am I missing it? Like, am I missing something? Am I doing something wrong? But I, I think that's all it is. It's like, it is really good. It's better than it's ever been, but it's still not really a full day if you're taking photos and videos and stuff.
1: I think half the hype is because last year's was so bad. Well, yeah, after all the controversy, had, totally. Yeah. Well, so and now the have good battery.
0: Adding either. this extra battery case, it's been such a great upgrade because. I'll get to the end of the day, like 9 p.m., and I'm at 100% on my phone. And if I forget to plug it in that night, I can go until the next evening. And, you know, it's only dying at like 6 p.m. So I can go for a very full day and a half. Two days. Which is that. So... Without the battery case, it's like, yes, it's good, but it's not it's not blowing my mind. Adding the battery case, it feels like it more than doubles it. I don't. I. I think a lot of that's because it's also overnight when you're not really using it. Yeah. So that's why it feels like double because it's, it's actually not going to use for a big period of that. But holy cow, it's – I yeah, I've just – I really am happy with it. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to keep it on all the time because I don't always need that, um, and it is yeah. really big. It but really I big. actually had the um, – the clear silicone or not silicone, the the clear plastic case before. And it started getting more and more slippery over time. And it gets yellow too, right? Or does the Apple
1: one not do that? I didn't have
0: that. No, The, the Apple one, I mean, it's very well made. Um, first of all, it, it started slipping out of my hand more often, no drops for the first few weeks. And then gradually it started picking up more and more until like right before I replaced it, I dropped it, Three times that day, I'm like, okay, that's
1: it. I need a grippy case. I like the silicone case the most. I think that one's like the one I've been rolling for like five years now.
0: I I think that they're fantastic, but my favorites are the leather cases. Like just the the design and build of them are really a cut above everything else. I mean, you pay for it. There, again, again, yeah. this goes to the luxury. Just the luxury like everything, that, Apple. Yeah, but it, it's also way better than third-party luxury stuff. If you know, you know, if you look oh, at yeah, like a sure, Louis Vuitton case, or if you look at uh, Coach cases, like Versace there's all these other people well. making $100, 200 two hundred dollar cases. Yeah, they're not as nice. They're really not. Um, I mean, the leather is great, but the physical design, the way that the buttons respond, like the case buttons interact with the actual phone mm-hmm. buttons. Uh, I, I really think Apple did it best. And the lining on the inside. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, I don't know. That's a purchase I've been really happy with lately. Something uh, you've been interested in that I am very interested in but won't be buying is the 1DX Mark
1: III. The, um So I use the 1DX II for, well, like a bit of a backstory was I started out on a Sony NEX3. And then back then, everybody's dream camera was like the Rebel T2i, the T3i, 70D. Those were very big for a while. And then eventually I tried, um, I believe, the Panasonic GH4 because in 2015, it was one of the first cameras I could shoot 4K to an SD card and was consumer affordable. And I was pretty happy with Panasonic. And then eventually, Sony Wave came by. I gave it a try. and never really got used to it. So I went back to Panasonic, did the GH5, and pretty much said to myself that I was never going to switch over to the Canon one DX because it was massive and at the price, it was a little bit unattainable, but I noticed, um, I wanted to do more travel films and I saw like 4k 60 and people were using it for like Sam colder and all those guys were using it to shoot video because it was one of the more versatile DSLRs for photo and video while giving you the slow motion in camera. So I went on Craigslist and found a few used ones. that had very low shutter counts and, around halfway through their cycle. So that was about 2018. And I originally wasn't really used to it. Um, I've been using Panasonic for years. But after switching to it, I was very impressed. The slow motion looked amazing. And um, I was a huge fan of the Canon colors. The autofocus was great. But I did feel like the camera was a little bit heavy. And at the same time, I also found that the file sizes were massive in 4K. Uh, These 512 gig CFast cards would fill up every single video, essentially, if it was like a longer video, like the iPhone review, it would fill up the entire card. So yeah. each project would be one terabyte and I would need like an SSD just for that. But I was willing to deal with it. I was, and on the computer, it's also not a very nice format to edit. Um, it, it's, JPEG, M, yeah, JPEG, it's MJPEG MJPEG right? MJPEG. Yeah. So it was like my favorite camera and I've been telling everyone like, this is my favorite camera. And I was like a huge advocate for it. Um, and we tried the ESR very briefly. I ended up, um, getting rid of that and buying another used 1DX. So for about a year and a half, our workflow was two um, and at some point three Canon 1DX2s, which was a very durable camera, same battery, um, could take photos and video on it. And we took that everywhere around the world. And it was like a workhorse camera. But at the same time, you know, like there's things about that camera that, really needed to be fixed. There is no C-log 10-bit 422. So the latitude and editing may not have been as much as we would have liked. Dynamic range was pretty good, but not crazy. Um, There was also a huge crop factor, which was, I believe, 1.7 something. And that made like a 35 mil lens 50 or over, I believe. Uh, So there was like, a lot of compromises, but it was a camera that you could put on the gimbal, shoot great slow motion, sharp video, and um, I I felt like all the trade offs of that camera were were worth it. Um, so when the one D X three came out, we had been like waiting and waiting for that for many years, and I feel like Canon, in a lot of ways, has done what we expected them to do with the one D X three, but nothing really more than that.
0: Well, before you dive into the one D X three, I gotta I gotta let you know that I've been on the record as criticizing everybody that buys a 1DX2 for video. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And not because it doesn't create great images. I mean, I've seen so much really fantastic work from it. Of of course it makes nice videos. It's just such a strange camera to have become common for video to me. Again, it's like whatever works for you. So the fact that you've been able to put out great stuff with it. But I, I was always super frustrated with the 5D shooting motion JPEG. So I literally never shot... 4K on my 5D, even though it'd probably be pretty similar 24 frames per second. I bet it'd
1: look. I actually rented a 5D a few times and never shot video on it. So, like, when it was time to switch over to the 1DX, it was like, well, I guess we come back full circle because I remember hating the 5D. Well, and the the
0: file size is just not an option for me. Like, I'm not good. What do you do with one terabyte? Okay, wait, let's circle back to that afterwards. How you actually manage all (laughs) that footage. But yeah, I mean, it really is a struggle to deal with that much stuff coming through. So to me, it wasn't really an option. The reason I want to talk about the new 1DX is because I'm frustrated that this now looks like one of the best video cameras that'll be available in 2020. You know, I'm already very hyped about the uh, C500 Mark II, Um, just behind that, uh, not quite as much, but the Sony... uh, the Sony FX9, um, which you know also also looks pretty great. I'd prefer the the Canon, but um, now all of a sudden we've got full frame 4K RAW 6.5K, 5.5K, I think. Uh, oh right, right sorry, um, 6.5 something else. What else? Yeah, does 4.2.2, does it shoot ProRes? No, it's got to do like it AV. Does,
1: I think it might do, I don't know if it does it external. I know like when it first came out, there was a lot of like confusion. Some media outlets said it had one feature, another said it didn't. Mm-hmm. And then the Canon rep we spoke with at CES mentioned something that I had to kind of go back and make sure it was uh, correct. Like something with like how um, C-Log 10-bit 4.2.2 is the only way you can get, I think, the the higher bit rate. I think they said if you're not shooting in C-Log, then... It is. Uh, it may have been. It was either eight bit or it was four two zero. But you know what? That's um,
0: exactly perfect because what drove me crazy yeah. about MJPEG on the one DX or the five D, like back in the day, you'd create these huge files, and they are not ten bit. They're they, not. They're not four two two. They're four two zero. Like they're missing all of this data, but they're enormous and it's like it's being wasted
1: basically so it was being handicapped like the com- ugh, the whole like yeah. camera had like the file or it was able to shoot slow motion but it seems like they they didn't have focus peaking they didn't have um c-log and they didn't have the the file format that people might prefer it almost seemed like i don't know they were giving us hints of it and i feel like when the eos r came out it had every feature that the 1dx should have had uh except for the ability to shoot 4k60 which for travel films right. is something that is very important, especially with a camera that doesn't have stabilization.
0: Yeah. So I've been, I've already been a little frustrated comparing the 1080. Uh, I, I'd heard so many good things about the 1080 on the, on the R and I see people use it. You know, I see creators that do fantastic work, making beautiful things with it. But once I open it up and I'm looking at it uncompressed, it's when you I I talked about this on a previous episode but when it's full frame it's a lot softer and it's more about the I noticed that too. Yeah, it's more about the crop than the format. I think you know if you shoot 1080 cropped it's it's sharper um on a recent project ended up with a lot of banding in the background cuz we had a, a very smooth gradient and there's two EOS R's set up, one is shooting 4K, one is shooting 1080 just so I could get full frame cuz I needed that one to be wide. And then we had the C two hundred as the primary camera. C two hundred, of course, looked great. Um, the four K ESR also looked great. But then the ten eighty, tons of banding, looks very soft compared to the others. I was, I was really disappointed by it.
1: For sure, yeah. I think like there was something that I noticed about the one the or the EOS that the video just wasn't the same as the one DX. Even if I was shooting like four K, uh, I tried the C log. I almost feel like it was a bit like the Canon six D Mark II where 6D was like a very popular camera when the 5D was out as well. But when the 6D Mark II came out, for some reason, the video from that camera just didn't look as good as what it should have looked like on perhaps like another Canon DSLR. Yeah.
0: So my overall impression now that I've been using the R for a while, I feel like I can say it's an awesome B camera. Like it's a really great choice as a backup, as something smaller that'll just fit in your bag as, um, you know uh, something very versatile that's good enough for a lot of situations but the physical controls suck like uh, i've been frustrated by them a lot and there's and i don't think it's me not getting used to it i think there were some wrong decisions that were made um but you know that hopefully they will get past that i don't think it's going to last forever um but it, it's a transitional camera you know we're going to look back on it as like the 5D Mark II where it was like, yeah, that was on the way to the what the 5D horn. really became. Yeah. So yeah. I, I I you know it's the first of the mirrorless for Canon, they did very good for coming out of the gate, but it's still got a long way to go. Um anyway, yeah. I this is gonna be a really interesting year with the uh 1D X three just being near the top. I mean, it really might sure. create images that are, it should be competitive with the uh, there's c five hundred two, which costs twice as much it's $15,000 camera versus the 1DX3 is what uh, well it depends on thinking
1: US or Canadian price in Canada after tax or with BT, BC tax i think on the preorder it was about a 10,000 uh, 10, well yeah, BC
0: tax is like 1000 <laughs> yeah
1: about double of Alberta but yeah, yeah i think 9000 um is the what i notice actually is Canada if you convert the American price to Canadian in Canada, you're paying a premium as we usually do, but they actually have a much better pre-order bundle in Canada than they do in the U.S. I believe in the U S you get a 64 gig CF express card, which people who had to spend money on the CFAS cards that kind of sucks. But Mm -hmm. in Canada, I think um, the price for the camera was 8,999 plus tax, but you get a 512 gig card as well as a spare battery, which alone is about $300 and also the card reader. So it's not a cheap camera, but you have to remember that the 1DX3 or the 1DX line in general is a very Olympic camera. They release it on Summer Olympic years from what I've told, been told. Um, the speed of that camera is crazy. The megapixels are a little bit lower than perhaps the 60, the, the and that's because the file size yeah, is, uh, they're exactly where I want it buffers..
0: To be. Yeah, I, I like the file size. I'm totally happy with it. And, and I mean, we are just talking about the video. The video features are what catch my eye because it's weird that it is such a good video camera. You know, I, th- I think basically Canon decided that the 1DC is not a line they wanted to pursue. So they're like, look, let's just throw all of these features into the 1DX, that'll be the camera. Um, and there's actually something recently, that, this is a bit of a tangent, something about the C500. I had said that, oh yeah, that is what I wish I could have got instead of the C200. I still kind of feel like that, but there was something I noticed in a potato jet video the other day that he said the battery life is about half the C200, which made me feel a little bit better about keeping the C200. That's actually, that can be a really <laughs> significant thing, needing twice as many batteries. They can kind of suck. Yeah, for sure. But, but I it's mean, not, yeah. like
1: the Black Magic. Black, yeah. Mag- just, Black Magic's been very popular, but the battery life of 30 minutes just makes it Oof. kind of a, a camera that I. I can't really consider. And even on like the yeah. red, I think like it depends on the, the size of battery and the camera really weighs 10 pounds. So what I've been doing a lot lately is plugging it into AC and just walking around with the cord, which I'm kind of okay with just because of the latitude. But I think like there's a lot of game-changing cameras on the market at the moment. The Canon 1DX has a great battery life uh, about, I'd say about a day of shooting, you'll get about two batteries needed. Um, if you're shooting like 4K, 60 quite constantly, which is I'd say as much as you could ask for. But there are cameras that are coming out like the Blackmagic 4K, the 6K, which are really good cameras, kind of like when uh, Sony first started launching 4K cameras that were small. But the battery life is 30, 35 minutes, and it's just one of those things that you're going to have to deal with. Um, I remember when I was on Sony on the A6300, I'd have to travel with six or seven batteries at a time, and they were all pretty small. But just like when you're filming, you'd have to keep in mind... Oh, I might have to change the battery in 20 minutes. I hope I still have four more of them left. Um I have to make sure this clip doesn't run too long because of the battery life.
0: I just got a crazy battery in. Um so the, the DNO sent me this battery that's 900 watt hours uh which wow. I can't really wrap my head around. A standard You can't fly with that. Yeah, no. <laughs> that's yeah, that would be very illegal. Uh a, a standard V-mount battery when you stick it on the end of like a cinema pack like often that's Around 100 well, watt hours, right? Yeah, so 100, is 100, I think. Yeah, 100 because that's what you can fly with. So a lot of people use 100s. Yeah. You may use 200 if you're on a bigger set. But 900, so they, they also, along with that, sent me a, a really interesting light that I've been super happy with, the uh, DNO 180-watt Pro LED. So it's like a panel, 180 watts, so it's super bright. But for the Mac Pro video, we were it, it was running – the whole time we are shooting each day, so I don't know, it's like seven or eight hours at a time, on at you know, between fifty and one hundred percent, and it just never died. Like, we just kept using it, uh, which is. Did you have to use like wheels for the battery, or so the battery I feel like that's like the size of a car battery? It is. Yeah, it's like a car battery, but spread out in sort of a suitcase shape, and it comes with a net. So we just <laughs> it was great because I, I put it on the the rolling. C, uh, it's not a c stand, but the rolling stand that we have hang the battery on it, and the whole thing can just roll around the studio, no cables on the floor. Because that's a big impediment to moving things in the studio is there's cables running in yeah, every direction. Sure. So even if the lighting stands are on wheels, like we try to keep a lot of them on wheels so it's mobile, they're crisscrossing and you just you can't go past another cable without doing some work. It's, it's constantly a, a pain. So just having one thing even indoors where there's plugs all around us yeah. uh, on a battery was really liberating. It was cool.
1: And it changes the way you, uh, you kind of plan and shoot things as well. I feel like, um, we were talking about the tripod the other day, the satchelor, which is extremely expensive. And, um, I'm still, I'm still waiting for mine, but it's one of those things where from the videos that I saw, the ease of use of it and the convenience in terms of a creative perspective, it, it changes the way you kind of set things up. You're more willing to move something completely across the room as opposed to plugging, unplugging everything and resetting. It. it might sound a little bit crazy, but I feel like, on like when you're producing a lot of videos and at a tight deadline and you want to try to push it the extra mile or do something a little bit extra, it does make a difference in the long run. And these are all like products that last for many years to come. Yeah, I mean, a lot longer than the bat- the camera bodies we're talking about. Oh, yeah, the batteries, the bodies are...
0: Another example is I uh, got the HDTX from Deity, which is the wireless receiver Perfect. or transmitter for a XLR input. So the way that I'm using that, that instantly became really useful around the studio. Again, this is indoors. This is where I can easily run a cable. Yeah is just plugging it into the back of the boom so that there's no cable running to the camera or to the external recorder. All of a sudden, having one less cable means you can move stuff. I can just move the boom around anywhere in the studio completely free, no tangle. Like The wires become the biggest issue sometimes. And then the the really nice thing about the Deity is it also has an internal micro SD, so you can record a backup uh, as you go. I've actually been having some issues with the Deity Connect with the wireless receiver, and I spoke to them. They're going to send me a new one because I, I guess their warranty thing is like they don't even if there's a problem they're going to fix it. So uh, a, a new connect is on its way. Hopefully that resolves the issue. But just recording to that uh, micro SD card was way easier than you know also having a audio device attached to the pole right like you i could put the mix p3 on the pole on the same stand yeah. as the mic and that could help with it but that's a lot bigger and still cables involved and i got in to get another battery and um yeah no the uh hdtx awesome addition.
1: yeah things just seem to like like it's just funny because like things in the beginning are very simple i think like one camera type of thing. And back then it was like the iPod. And eventually you're like, okay, I'll add this one thing or I'll change my gear set over to another product. And then all of a sudden it's like 50 different things. And then each year or like at a period of time, you want to like simplify it. And then eventually it starts to kind of stack up. And all of a sudden you've got four wires again. I remember back <laughs> in the day, it was just like a voiceover or like a shotgun mic on the camera. And now it's like, uh, I didn't really want to get like an external recorder. But then after you hear the sound quality, um, with exception to the echo from my Mac Pro video, you're like, okay, this mix pre was worth it. Everyone was right, uh, that type of thing. And then it's just like one thing after the other. This light is good. The Aperture 120s become like almost like a YouTube standard for great lighting at for a great sure. price, type of thing.
0: Yeah, the and I mean for me, I'd say the 300D2 is like that's that should be the new standard. I know you have to pay a little more for it, but that extra power once you have it. You'll find a way to use it. Um, yeah, I mean, there's just so many great options out there. You don't. Uh, let's go back to our original conversation. You don't need them. <laughs> you can. St- I think you can yeah. still run a successful channel without them. But it really opens 100%. up such cool possibilities. The, the last thing I want to touch on um, is storage. Uh, I have a few things to say on my side. I want to uh, give some updates about the my NAS situation uh, with my Synology. But you said you're generating one
1: terabyte per video, what do you what do you do with it all? Well, the biggest reason why my videos um, sometimes are one terabyte is probably because I'm not that good at A-Roll. So we'd have like a one hour or 45 minute roll of A-Roll and it's all shot in 4K motion JPEG. Um, the way we have it sorted out is thankfully um, SanDisk and GTech, they provide all the storage that we need. Um, so we have about 14 two terabyte SSDs uh, that just go on rotation of being plugged in. And um also a rotation of CFAST cards. And I honestly don't back up any of my footage. I Ooh, have done the project. Do I'll just like <laughs> delete the whole thing. I hope I start making videos to the point where I'm proud of them that I'll want to keep them and archive them for years to come. Oh, I think okay. like for travel films, we always save it.
0: But wait, 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 sorry. So you said you don't back it up. Do you are you saying you don't you don't keep
1: it? Uh yeah, we delete the uh delete the uh-huh, event okay. right after. So I, I have recently
0: decided that for Tech videos that are just like B roll of a product. You know, there's no traveling. There's nothing. There's nothing other yeah. than products. I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna delete that stuff after a while. Like, not you know, maybe a year after it's done, so that I know that I, I don't need to reference it again. But I have recently signed on to that as well. I think it makes sense. There's no point in keeping it all because yeah, I mean, you're you're not bad at A roll. It takes me an hour to record as well. I have tons of footage sitting around, but that's the thing. You know, so as I've been shooting RAW from the C200 when I export that as ProRes 4.2.2, which is, you know, that's supposed to be the standard everybody uses. everybody's like, yeah, ProRes 4.2.2, yeah. that's the the low default, right? That's the minimum that you're going to export and, and edit with. Those are bigger than the raw files. And I don't know if I'm doing something wrong, but that's just what
1: happens any time I create them. I haven't found a way to make... Oh, ProRes, yeah. I think, like, the standard right now for um, YouTube export, I think most people are doing... A, uh- although,
0: we <laughs> wait. wait. Just to clarify, I'm also not saying that that's not necessarily for my final export. It's that I convert oh, my I raw see. stuff to ProRes 422 as my working files. So all of my you know, my one hour of A-roll, that's all ProRes 422 4K.
1: Oh, that makes more sense. Yeah, because yeah, I was thinking like, I know like for like video exports to YouTube, people use um, H.264 usually. Um, yeah. But what it, from what I've found is um, at least with Red Raw, we just drop it in and edit it in the timeline. We don't do any sort of transcoding but what i found was that the files on the 1dx2 are actually larger than uh eight or 10 to one compression uh red raw 6 K. Uh, I just i i don't i don't know i don't know the
0: solution i think maybe it's just deleting more <laughs> but the things yeah you know, but i feel
1: like most of the time you'll like when you reference footage you'll just be you'll just need the master copy um like even though you uh, you might think you may like regrade the footage and re-reference, I feel like most of the time, if you were to go back and reference something from a past video, you just want to take out the the copy from YouTube or whatever was uploaded and and kind of slot that in. Uh, so that's like I've been keeping the master copies, but I never have found that I had to like wish that I had the raw files originally because I simply. At least in my case wouldn't go ahead and grade them again. I'd probably just like copy whatever grade I had on the other clips.
0: Yeah, and this episode is really just like for this is the episode I want to listen to. It's like for people in exactly my situation creating <laughs> YouTube videos. That's okay. So here's something I discovered recently as well. When I I realized that also creating those um the neutral files cuz okay, you take raw from either C200 or Kirby from Red or whatever and then you want to transform that look into something that is neutral before you start adding any sort of film emulation or your LUTs or whatever, you're like your look to it. You want to yeah. neutralize it and just give it a rec 709. There's a few different ways to do it. I had, you know, first I tried just the Canon transform LUT, right? This is what Canon recommends you use. Just throw it on there and like, okay, yeah, it's got contrast. Like it looks kind of normal, but it doesn't look that great. I was never happy with it using the Alexa LUT. I found looked much better and, um, Armando and Crimson Engine, they made a modified version that got the C200 looking even closer to the Alexa. So that's what I had been using. Recently, I tried using the internal Resolve, what do they call it? Uh, RCM, which is basically their built-in way of interpreting the log footage and giving you a Rec. 709 look. So if if you've ever heard about ACES, which is the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences method for doing this. So it's, that's probably going to become the most widely used way of converting log to REC709 in the future. But right now, uh, you know, the, the Resolve thing is already there. And basically you just say, you tell Resolve, this is the footage that you're looking at. Can you please convert it to this uh, delivery uh, color space? So REC709. And I realized the way that it transforms the footage looked way more natural, like way more ac- correct. Yeah. And I, I I was being blind to how much using these transform LUTs were just totally coloring the the look of it. And in an actually, in a really nice way, I found, I actually still have been going back and using the Alexa LUTs because I just found it looks nicer. Like it's it's more aesthetically pleasing, but it smooths out the skin a lot more. It retains less total detail. It looked a lot less real. And it really drove home the point to me that like this, the data you get out of your camera is just a bunch of numbers. And the way that it looks is completely up to you. And it might, I mean, well, unless the data is not there, which is unfortunately that's really often the case, you know, like with the EOS R that I was complaining about, the data is not necessarily always there. If you're shooting on a bigger camera that has, you know, raw 10 bit or 12-bit codex, you know, th- there yeah. is more going on. Um, anyway, I, I just thought it was really interesting seeing that difference. And I think if anyone out there is currently grading footage and just using, using a basic LUT that they came across to do everything, you should – Take one step that's further. Right yeah, I mean, tr- so try this RCM thing. I, I'll I'll put a link in the show notes with the. Yeah, I think like once tutorial. you find
1: one way that you think looks good, right. it's very easy to carry it on for every single video and do things the exact same way until you have like a bit of a turning point where you see something new and can't unsee it um, compared to what you were doing before. And I think like that's sort of what I, I'm trying to figure out, like new LUTs and stuff. But we've been using like Steel Teal for a lot of videos now and all the travel films and it it is important to like experiment and try some new things. Well, you, I think, yeah, you should definitely at least try it. It's pretty easy to do.
0: Um, and yeah, it'll make you realize there's just, there's more going on in your footage than you thought. Also in, I got to read about this more, but I think there also are, there's things missing in LUTs. Like it is a simpler algorithm. It's doing a less complex transform than is possible. Um, in terms of you know, I think it's something like it's a it's a thirty two bit operation with a LUT and there's like a you know it's like a thirty two bit floating point operation in Resolve or whatever stuff that is I don't actually understand <laughs> but uh, you know there, there are different levels of complexity and it's hard to understand them that was actually so kind of fun moment for me is on a recent episode of the Go Creative podcast. There was special guest Steve Yedlin, who is the cinematographer behind Looper and Knives Out, which is what he's talking about on that, and uh, The Last Jedi. So Star Wars cinematographer, you know, very top of the world. And I read his blog all the time. He has incredibly useful information. But the best part was he answered my question on the podcast, which was, very cool. And, um, and then I went and I was a guest on the show. So I don't know if that episode is out as of now, but you should probably go check out the go creative podcast. Cause I'll be on it soon in the company of star Wars cinematographers, which makes me feel really good. And I absolutely, well, I mean, I think we all know that I don't, I'm not, I'm at the same, <laughs> I'm not in that same boat. Uh, I don't know how I ended up there, but it was fun to do.
1: Yeah. So I actually just watched a knives out, um, trailer uh, a couple of days ago. Cause, um, I right now I have a um a friend who who works with me and um he he doesn't really have a background in photo and video and it was sort of like a uh, he's like a, like whenever I need a camera guy he can help out and um recently we've been using the Red and he's been having a lot of interest in the whole like cinematography thing all of a sudden whereas before it, it was less of an interest um and I, he came to work the other day and he was like um oh I just saw a trailer for Knives Out and I feel like it it looks like it was shot on a Red and I was like I was like, okay, that's cool. Like, we'll go like take a look and see what see what camera it was shot on, and um, to look at the cinematography because I definitely don't watch as many movies as I would like to. Um, so to go and like see the trailer and now like compare the cinematography, the color grading, and um, the kind of equipment that they use in production film, and being able to kind of look between like an RE a film cam and and everything is is something that I'm very new to. But um, it's funny that you brought up Knives Out because it like the first movie trailer that I've looked at in the past months
0: well i'd really strongly recommend watching the movie and then yeah listening to this episode of of their podcast because he did a really detailed breakdown and you start to realize that there's way more going on than you thought like yeah you you look at it and it's like it feels very filmic but the the way that that look is generated is i don't know there's a lot there it's really cool last thing i want to touch on and i I don't know. Maybe, I won't go too deep into it. I guess I'll follow up more on it later. But is uh, I just want to follow up with the Synology that I had and that I've been working on backup. I've been trying to manage some storage. One of those things is I've been deleting more files, which I think is going to be helpful. But uh, a huge upgrade that I made to my whole workflow around this was actually putting Velcro on the back of my laptop. I finally decided to let my MacBook Pro become a mess and ugly. And I'm so glad that I did for a long time. I, you know, I had a few stickers that I was like, I don't stick, I don't put these stickers on the back, but I don't, you know, I don't want, I don't want to like look cheesy or whatever. Cause it's got to show up in YouTube videos. And then finally Anya just put one on when I wasn't looking like just a random sticker. And I was like, great. Now it's, it's a mess. Sticker. Yeah. It's like, it, she like broke the seal. So I put all the rest of the stickers I had on it and Velcro sticks, sticky things. And I put that on the back of a Samsung T5, uh, card reader, my USB C dongle, all the things that need to be in in my laptop all the time. And it instantly changed my life and feels so good because now they're not sitting on the desk desk next to it. They're organized. They're hidden from you. They're just behind the computer on an airplane. They're not dangling off the side of the seat. I'm just, it was such a quality of life improvement. Um, and then it meant that use because previously I was only keeping like one or two projects on my local drive because I, you know, I, I had to have some of the stuff that I'm working on just always available. And then yeah. a lot of the other stuff was being kept on five terabyte slow spinning disks. So now with the Synology, I've been using the USB copy method. Uh, method. No, the USB copy app inside of Synology where you can say, every time I plug this drive in, uh, mirror it, or you can tell it to copy in a few other ways, but I'm using the mirroring method so that anything that was deleted off the spinning drive, that gets deleted off Synology. It just is a perfect clone of each other. And I don't even have, all I have to do is plug it in. And this has been such a great way to do it. So now I can basically treat the spinning disk drives as the primary source so that they're with me all the time. I can have them at home or the studio or whatever. I just have to plug it in every once in a while and all those changes sync to the Synology. And then I'm using that Samsung T5 Velcro to the back of my computer as
1: my active projects uh, hard drive. And I'm pretty happy about all this. Yeah, the backing up thing is is a very good idea. I'm I, I need to start doing it, but like the systems, there's like so many directions you can go with storage. There's like the RAID setups, um, there's uh, the like the wireless backups, the NAS system, which is something that I haven't really touched into it, but it has been recommended. Um, the most recent thing I've been playing around with is um, is the RAID setups. And um, the current RAID setup in my Mac Pro is one where, in terms of reliability and fail-safe, it probably isn't the smartest option, but it's the fastest option for video editing um and it's having four nvme ssds that are all set to raid 0 i don't know if that's like the best idea um from like a reliability standpoint but from what i've been told it was with these types of drives they don't seem to to fail as often but the biggest recommendation that i've been getting was to to back up and mirror that drive constantly
0: yeah uh i think you can never <laughs> mirror it enough times um you know it's important to keep in mind that like raid is not a Backup at all, right? Like any yeah. kind of RAID, um which you know zero is when there's no redundancy, right? Like that's zero one drive
1: fills and all four are pretty much useless. Yeah.
0: So it's the most dangerous thing you could do. So yeah. I'm not gonna recommend it to <laughs> But anybody. for video editing,
1: the scratch disk.
0: Right, right. I mean it is it, nice it is fast. really fast. But it just means that you need to have actual backup as well. Uh, yeah, but but that's sure. in any case, like doesn't matter how how your primary drive is rated or not rated or whatever. Like you need to have a backup that is a different copy. I I can't say that enough. So anyway, that's everything I had for today. Justin, you got any uh, parting words?
1: Thanks for having me on. Nope. I hope uh, this is one of my first podcasts. So I'm oh, like a little bit, okay. uh, a little bit nervous here and there and, um, and, uh trying to know when to, when to talk. And um, yeah, but it's a, uh, it's a cool experience. And uh, I've been trying to listen to more podcasts lately trying to find time here and there. Uh hopefully on flights can start having some that I that I go to. Uh but you've been doing a great job on your YouTube videos. I've been watching all of them over the past couple of years since that iPhone ten video. And I think like just like the visual side of things, the information and also the perspective is what I find very entertaining content because um, I'm obviously pretty bored of watching like general tech content as well because we've been making it for so long.
0: Well, yeah, you may be new to podcast, but you're not new to YouTube. So everybody go check out Justin's stuff. <laughs> it's, it's very good. Also, your Instagram. It's great. Thank you. <laughs>